of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 481. Jason Lingren is with me, and we are happy to have Mike Williams with us. It's been a long time since I've talked with Mike. I don't know, a couple, two, three weeks ago, I had one of his videos in front of me, and it kind of persuaded me to steer Jason and I back on ground that we've covered now that so much detail is being brought forward. And that's kind of where Mike is. And I would say the same about the book called Chaos, which is about the Manson nonsense, uh, the skit that rattled the world. So much detail is being laid down that it's for anyone who really wants to know how much nonsense we live through in culture. People like Mike, people like the book Chaos are putting the actual factual information out there that you, you know, it is what it is. But I will say that I think it was it was either 2012 or 2013 when I realized McCartney had been swapped out. And since that time, everything slowly started to change. But let's jump in here. Welcome, Jason. Wow. And a very lovely good morning. Hey, welcome, Mike. It's good to have you on, man. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for having me on the show. <laughs> let's start with a couple <laughs> blunt questions. Is it your view, if we were to look at the whole, let's just start with the British bands, the big British bands from the 60s that went into the 70s, do you think any of them are free of the kind of Tavistockian construct that the Beatles have been shown to be? No, no. The entire British invasion, along with all the other genres of music that followed, are all inventions of Tavistock and the social scientists that all come in under the umbrella of the Committee of 300. So that's funny you should mention that. I don't know. It was a long, long time ago when I first read that book. I think that was published, what, in the 80s or something? Maybe in the early 90s? First edition, you're talking about the John Coleman book? Yeah. Yeah, that was either the late 80s or around the early 1990s. So it's about 35 years ago or so. If I'm remembering, he was writing in the 80s and he had a couple other things, but I think it was 91 or 92. And it wasn't too long after that that I first read it. And he flat out smacks it down right there. And then he makes just open statements about the Tavistockian constructions, but it's a little, it's tame. He doesn't say every, everybody, but you know, I have been saying for years, the British invasion was exactly that. What's your opinion of all, how do you deal with it before we start getting into it? Because I know you were a big Beatles guy. I was certainly a big Beatles guy. How has it shifted your thinking about how you consume music and how you conduct your entertainment portion of your life? Well, I don't listen to a lot of music anymore, Crow, as far as uh, you know, what I used to listen to. My work has taken the luster off of the Beatles and uh, many, many other bands. In fact, I just released a playlist of 100 independent artists, and these are all folks that are subscribed to my YouTube channel. And so I would much prefer to listen to independent artists because that's real creativity. That's not a mock-up. That's not loaded up with ghostwriters and all of that stuff. So when I first got into the whole Beatles conspiracy, the McCartney conspiracy, it was a tough pill to swallow. As I've mentioned on many, many shows, I was a huge, huge Beatle freak. It's because of the Beatles that I picked up the guitar. It's because of them that I started writing music, recording music, and learned how to put a song together. But as I was going through the process of doing the research, I started to dismantle it. And uh, so today, the way I look at it is there were a lot of great songs. There's no question about it, because we had some extremely competent people 
writing the songs and they had studio musicians and players recording the music, especially I'm talking about the Beatles uh, specifically here between 1962 and 66. From 1967 on, the, the Billy period, Billy Shears, 67 through 70, the Beatles, specifically John Lennon and uh, George Harrison, were writing more of their own music and playing more on the recorded tracks, but the Beatles were still using studio players and ghostwriters. So, you know, when I listen to it today, uh, I listen to it knowing what's underneath it all. And so that level of excitement, that level of being really drawn to the music, it's just, it's just not there anymore. And quite frankly, I, I really haven't listened to a lot of Beatles stuff or even solo stuff in, in quite a while, a long time. I think when it all started to fall into place for me, when I really realized, you know, not only was something wrong here, but look, you know, they swapped out one of the most popular people in the world right in front of your eyes. When you get to that last Beatles thing where they're on the roof, it starts to make perfect sense. They really needed a world-class keyboardist there, didn't they? And I've also wondered if since his name was Billy, that they were worried it was getting out or something. But when you look back on it, it's almost like, how did we, how did we buy all this? I mean, what do you think when you look at Billy playing keyboards with, with the last Beatles? I mean, they, they kind of had to have that there, didn't they? Yeah. So the get back sessions were the entire month of January and the premise, we have to remember the premise of let it be with the get back sessions. They were supposed to come in. I think it was 12 to 14 new songs write, rehearse, and record them within two weeks. And then right after that, they were going to do a live concert, and that was going to lead to a TV special. None of that transpired. In fact, when they showed up at the Twickenham Studios, it was nothing but a vacant warehouse. Uh, they didn't even have a recorder there. And so the first thing you have to ask yourself as you're watching this and you're taking it in. So what you have to do, folks, is you have to strip away all of the conditioning of just being enamored with the Beatles, because that's all a fictional account. It's what I refer to as the Cinderella story. And you have to get down to basics. So they're there to record a new album, brand new material coming in, we're told, basically, with not a whole lot of backlog. And they couldn't do it. And so the two weeks became a month. And after the 30 days, they were on a rooftop playing to who? To nobody. And they did five songs on the rooftop. A couple of them, they did two or so takes. And then what a lot of people don't know is that after the get back sessions, after the month of January had expired, they were still working on the songs. So it, it wasn't, Let It Be was not recorded within that 30 day period of time. In fact, some of the songs, all of the songs went through the, I should say all of them, but there were songs that went through the rest of the year and some of the songs were finished up in the early part of 1970. So some of those songs, uh, one year later is, is when they were finished. So as an example, the song, I Me Mine, George Harrison had about a minute and a half of that song. The way we got to whatever the song is today, two and a half minutes, three minutes, is Phil Spector did his copying, pasting, his editing, his producer wizardry behind the scenes. In the, uh, in the Get Back documentary by, that we just saw um, Peter Jackson's film, 
they made a statement in there that there was a, a version of uh, Don't Let Me Down that was the version that wound up on the album or the album that we're talking about would be the, the Hey Jude album because it was left off of Let It Be. And the truth of the matter is that that wasn't quite right, that the vocal was redone afterwards by John Lennon. And it was interesting. I had called that out in a video and it was a, a, maybe a couple of weeks after that, Peter Jackson was doing an interview with two fellows. I don't remember the name of the channel and all that stuff. And he had to explain, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, they, they actually did have to do the vocal afterwards, do it over again. It's the same thing with uh, For You, Blue. George Harrison had to come back and redo the vocal for that. I think Ringo added the drums to Long and Winding Road sometime in the early part of 1970. Billy replaced uh, John Lennon's uh, bass track on Let It Be. And we never really do get to see Long and Winding Road and the song Let It Be during the, the Get Back sessions. This, this stuff was, I'm convinced, was done afterwards. So the point I'm trying to make is there's a whole lot of production. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, that the public is not shown. And that's to give the illusion of all of this magic that the Beatles had. And quite frankly, a lot of these other bands, the Rolling Stones included, because they were another creation of Tavistock. So the reason why I'm going through this with Let It Be, the Get Back Sessions, is because that was a moment in time when we were supposedly being shown the creative genius of the Beatles, writing, rehearsing, and recording all of these songs. And we didn't see that. And in fact, for a band that had been around, we'll say 1962, by the time they got to 1969, they had all of their previous LPs under their belt. We have been told over and over again that they were just uh, brilliant songwriters, magical, able to do whatever it is that they need to do because they were the Beatles. And uh, what Let It Be shows us, what I, what I tell people is what the Let It Be or the Get Back Sessions showed us or showed me was what it is they could not accomplish. So I, I know Jason's going to want to get on on this and I have so many questions, but yeah. I, I, I had some notes that I wrote down the other day when I was watching a couple of the things that you recently put out. I, and I'm sure you've seen it because I know you've seen more than I have because of the detailed nature of the work you do. Here's the thing. At first, like years ago, when I realized it was all a put up, I started hating on the Beatles. Well, those bastards, look what they did to me. But when I came back down to earth and I realized, yeah, these guys are a Tavistock construction. Look how young they were when they got roped into this, not old enough right. to make sound decisions. And I started to realize, you know, I, I'm not the only victim here. You know, what, what most of those lives have been. And then I saw a clip of George Harrison and they were asking him questions. And he said, I was sleeping, I was daydreaming and I woke up and the, the interviewer asked, when was that? And he said, 1966. And of course, there's the double entendre there. Um, supposedly, you know, everyone's going to think that the original McCartney dies or gets replaced, however it goes, in 66. But my question is, what I started to think was, were they like MK MKUltrad? Um, I've heard a number of times when Harrison is interviewed where he would say things like, it's hard enough to pretend to be myself. And it almost feels like they were mind warped when they were young. And he's saying, I snapped out of it at some point. Do you think there's any there there? Yeah. So let me, before I get to there, let me just also mention, I want to answer your question about Billy Preston coming in. 
Billy Preston, in my mind, was brought in intentionally in order to put more structure into the get back and let it be sessions. Because it is when Preston showed up that the whole the whole thing picked up. I mean, he really brought in that that kick that they needed during those sessions. So I wanted to make sure I answer your question. The now, professional glue. <laughs> they needed some professional glue. Yes. And Billy Preston was a professional studio musician. I mean, in Get Back, they make it sound like he was just their buddy. He showed up on a lark and he set up his Fender Rhodes uh, piano and uh, he decided to sit down and play with him. I don't, I don't think that that's the case at all. I think Billy made a phone call. Just so everyone's listening, Billy Preston was considered a savant on the keyboards. I mean, like world-class, just so everybody knows. Right. For people who haven't followed, he's the African-American man who sat in on the last bit of Beatles on the Roof stuff we're ever going to see. And, and I'm with you, Mike. They, they brought in a gunslinger. Yeah, yeah, in order to get things going. Now, as far as the Beatles being MK altered, mind controlled, okay? I, you know, I have said going back uh, a couple of years ago, in fact, I have it in my big presentation, did the Beatles write all their own music? where I highly suspected that this was the case. And the reason why I say that is because we have images of um, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and uh, John Lennon with bird cages. And bird cages, they are Illuminati symbolism for mind control. So, because we have to ask ourselves, why do we have images on the internet of George Harrison and Paul McCartney, their heads inside a birdcage. And then we have other images of John Lennon where he has his head next to a birdcage and he has a Superman shirt on. Okay. And this goes back, the whole Superman thing goes back to the, the creation of the, the Ubermensch, the superhuman, Nietzsche and all of that stuff. And so I have suspected that they were in mind control programs at an early age, maybe going back into their teens. It could have went before that time. If anybody goes back and takes a look into the history of John Lennon's childhood, it was incredibly dysfunctional. And to me, when I read that and knowing what I know about how a lot of these people get into these programs, his childhood is ripe to make him a candidate to, to bring him in. So I, I, I think it's possible, Crow and Jason, that they were in mind control programs and they were groomed and handled. And, uh, you know, they weren't obviously aware of all of that grooming and handling. I mean, that's typically how it works, but Tavistock had them on the radar. And so when it was time, they brought them in because what Tavistock does and what the deep state does is, you know, they, they scour the landscape. They have their seeds planted everywhere and they had the Beatles earmarked to do what they did. It feels to me a little bit like what Manson has turned out to be on, on the tail of all the work that's now been done. But to get back to the point, I don't know this. I went through all kinds of feelings because music was like more than half of my life when I was young. I picked up a guitar for the same reasons you did. It was a very important part of my life. And when all this started falling apart, at first, those bastards, you know, I hated the Beatles. And then after a while, I began to realize, wait a minute, maybe these guys are victims far beyond what happened to me. But then I look at Paul McCartney when his book, I think Billy's Back was the version I got or something like that yeah. a few, few years ago. And I, I started falling back into that smug SOB and this and that. And then I started coming to earth and thinking, man. 
that's got to be a tough life to live. What Billy, the, the new Paul McCartney, if we say Billy Shears, just so everybody knows, we're talking about the replacement Paul McCartney. Right. What do you think? I mean, that's got to be a tough life, doesn't it? It is a tough life. And uh, in the memoirs and Billy's back, uh, Billy Shears will tell you that he made a lot of sacrifices. But in a way, it's hard to sympathize because along with these sacrifices, he has achieved um, significant uh, amounts of wealth and, and influence. His role, once he took over the Beatles, and I believe he was behind the scenes prior to uh, when he took the reins in the fall of 1966, was to really kick off the, the counterculture and to fundamentally change the very fabric of our society and our cultures, which essentially means to, uh, to take down traditional values to ensure that uh, institutionalized religions, in particular Christianity, was dismantled and so on. So on one hand, Billy is asking for sympathy, but on the other hand, he was well aware of what it is that uh, he was in place to do. And where, we, where I do have some sympathy, or at least I should say some understanding, is that the world of those that are within the pyramid of power is very, very different than our world. So the, the way they are raised, the way they are brought up, the way they are handled and groomed and so on, this is something that the average person outside of the pyramid of power has no understanding of. So in a way, that's all they know. It's like being in a cult. It's all they know. That's their world. That's how it works. So Billy tells us in memoirs that he was subjected to trauma-based mind control programs. And his earliest remembrance of such a program goes back to when he was three years old. He says he was mentored by Alistair Crowley. And uh, you know, Crowley died in 47. Billy was born in 1937. So there's the 10 years that Billy was referring to. Uh, it's a different world, Crow. And to them, that's the world. You know, they don't really understand ours. They they play to ours. They they benefit from ours by usurping our uh, our non-physical or spiritual energy, our consciousness, consciousness, and also our physical energy, which comes in the form of you know spending money on their merchandise, their uh, their their concerts, their albums, and so on. So sometimes it's a little difficult for me to have a lot of sympathy because you know we're dealing with a situation where. Billy is definitely part of the elite control system, and he has played a major, major role in the transformation of society. Uh, you know, he has, in my opinion, he hasn't shown me that aside from what he's telling us in the book, where there's a lot of revelation of method, and he's telling us what's going on behind the curtains. It's, it's. I mean, I'll, I'll tip my hat to that. I'll give him a lot of credit for that. But on the other hand. You know, he's he's still pushing their agenda forward. And I guess he wants to have his cake and eat it, too, in a way. Well, it's crazy. You know what you said? A couple things there is. Could you point to a figure who changed culture in this world more 
than the Beatles. I mean, it's incalculable. And you're right. Um, I do have some sympathy for people who are drafted in at such a young age. But, you know, in, in Billy's back, things like, oh, there's a girl who the original Paul got pregnant, tried to sue me. And I said, oh, take my DNA. It's not me to hell with you. Um, and this kind of callous attitude when, in fact, uh, he stepped in. Right. To, to fame, fortune, but none of the responsibility, I guess. But the religion comment you just made, what was it? It was the movie Michael about the arch, archangel with John Travolta, which I've taken apart to show that it's the sun, not an angel. But in that, he, he the archangel is saying, oh, John and Paul. And they say, oh, you mean the apostles? And he looks at him and says, no, the Beatles. Right. You know, that that clever play, even the setup of the names also cleverly put together. But I want to mention another thing that came out of the committee of 300. There's a man who's apparently a musical genius, apparently has a very high IQ ad. I think he died in 69. His name is Adorno. Some months ago, I was getting books, which I do. I collect books and I found all of Adorno's essays in one book. And so I grabbed it and it's astonishing the kind of musical level that he has a grasp of, but he is just bad mouthing popular music. And when I'm talking popular music, he died in 69 um, in the book committee of 300 is kind of tilted towards Adorno. But then as it turns out, some people that I've met over the years, because I do this for a living, are aware and and actually nod their heads as much as they can to say Adorno played a role in that. Uh, what are your thoughts on Adorno? And by the way, when you read that book, I mean, he's got nothing good to say about the genre we're talking about. Yeah. So Theodore Adorno was a social scientist, just like Willis Harmon. And he, in my view, played a significant role with the Beatles with the whole British invasion, but the Beatles were the first ones out of the shoot. The Beatles were the first manufactured band, if you will. So a lot of attention, a lot of focus, a lot of resources went in behind the Beatles. And Adorno was an accomplished composer. And I know there are folks that want to argue with that and say that, well, if you listen to his music, uh, he did, he did a lot of atonal music. So atonal music would be the kind of music you would hear in horror movies you know it's kind of there's no tonal center if call, you will call, i'm sorry but that's called the 12 a tonal scale i believe in the committee of 300 which yeah I, which i also want to talk to you about because you're a musician but anyhow i'm sorry for interrupting no that's okay so adorno his philosophy was to kind of oversimplify this thing is that we live in a, a fascist system and this system is oppressive and human beings will never become enlightened or illuminated or unshackled. And his work was all, it was tied into uh, the human potential movement, which is uh, something that Willis Harmon was, was deeply invested in. And uh, one of the things that uh, Adorno said, which to this day, I, I won't forget. He said that humans, when they go to work are producers and when they're out of work, they are consumers. And so he didn't have any use really for the capitalist system. Um, he thought that, uh, as you mentioned, Crow, that pop music was just, you know, it was just nonsense. And that human beings should be spending their time 
doing more constructive things. They should be philosophizing, being more creative, innovative, and so on. And he believed that the state had the means uh, to take care of all of the, the basic needs so that humans can thrive. That, you know, so if you take a look at what Adorno, like I said, folks, from a high level perspective, this is what he, he thought. Now, some people have said to me, well, if, if Adorno thought that pop music was rubbish, then why is it that he was involved in the Beatles music? Exactly. Right? <laughs> right. Well, the reason is because, because you, it's like climbing a ladder. It's like taking the stairs going up. What he did was he took the existing musical, mainstream musical premise genres that are out there, and he leveraged it to continue to build it and build it and build it. So if you take the Beatles music as an example, so let's just say they start with Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. I mean, these are not extraordinarily difficult songs. But as time went on in short order, the Beatles were turning out far more sophisticated music. And in my opinion, this was the strategy of Adorno and George Martin, because I believe that both of them work together. Martin was the day in and day out managing director of the Beatles psychological operation. And Adorno was overseeing. Next question would be, well, there's um, information out there where some people said that Adorno wrote all of the Beatles music. And I, in my big presentation, did the Beatles write all their own music? I cover this and I said, I don't subscribe to Adorno writing all of their music. He was a very busy man doing a lot of other stuff, writing books and all of this. But that does not mean that he did not write some of the music. In fact, if you listen to the Beatles song Piggies on the White Album, that's Adorno's philosophy right there. That's his ideology captured in that song. And implicated in Manson. Yes. Yep. And in Baroque classical style. So did that come from George Harrison? No, that didn't come from George Harrison. What I what I tell folks is if you want to if you want to get a comparison between a song that I believe that George Harrison did write on the White Album would be long, 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 and then you listen to uh, Piggies. No, these are two different composers. Okay, so that's what I believe Adorno did along with George Martin. They had a start basic, and then we see this exponential rise, this trajectory going from the first album, Please Please Me, to what they were putting out, starting with what I believe, I, I think the Help album with Rubber Soul and then Revolver, because this was during the Biopol period. We have, this, we have this, this rise in sophistication in the music that, in my opinion, it defies reasonableness. Especially when we look at the Beatles, what were they before they were signed to EMI in June of 1962. They were a bar and club band. That's what they were. And according to George Martin, his own words, they showed no signs of being prolific songwriters. He said he thought their music was rubbish and they had nothing behind them. And initially his job was to go find the music that they could record. There was an article in the Mercy Beat a magazine, which was popular back in the day. Uh, it was, the, I think, the August-September 1962 edition. And the, the main purpose of the article was to say that Ringo replaced Pete Best, but also in that article, it says that the Beatles were 
flying to London to record music that was written for them and given to them by their manager, their uh, recording manager, their producer, George Martin. So we have to keep this within the context of, of the entire story that when the Beatles first got started, when they first arrived in Hamburg in August of of uh, 1960, they were this young, inexperienced, rough around the edges bar and club band. And in fact, their first manager or handler, Alan Williams, before Brian Epstein stepped in, he had a difficult time getting them booked in Hamburg. And this this story is told in the, the complete Beatles documentary, which goes back to the 1980s, which was considered the Beatles documentary before anthology was was produced and and released so we you know we have these guys going back into august of 1960 john's 20 years old paul's 18 george is 17 and uh and then where to expect that from june of excuse me august of of 1980 excuse me 1960 to february 7th of 1964 when they land in america that's three and a half years so how did this bar and club band that was young, inexperienced, and rough around the edges showed no signs of, of songwriting? Their musician skills were, were average at best. How did they go from their Hamburg stint, August 1960, to arriving in America, February 7th, 1964, three and a half years? How did that happen? Is that organic? No, I, that's not organic. There was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And we also have to remember that when they did their DECA audition, which was on January 1st of 1964, uh, excuse me, 1962, uh, DECA declined to sign them. George Martin also declined them. And a lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people who follow the Beatles don't understand that George Martin did not want to sign the Beatles. He listened to the tape that Brian Epstein gave to him. He said, not interested. Memoirs tells us that George received a call from upstairs from a superior and said, wrong answer. You're going to sign these guys. And when George Martin did sign them, and we're told that contract was on June 18th of 1962, that's Biopaul's birthday, that Martin didn't work with the Beatles one-on-one himself. He had delegated the work to an assistant, Ron Richards. And when it wasn't panning out, in other words, what they were, were recording, songs that they were given and trying to record them and trying to get them on track when it wasn't working out because George Martin and Brian Epstein, you know, they listened to the playback. George received another phone call from a superior and said, okay, understand that there is no delegation. You have to work with them one-on-one. There's no delegating. So this, all of this stuff that was going on behind the scenes that many, many Beatle fanatics, uh, you know, Beatle fans don't know, or if they do know, they just ignore it because it's, it's, to not ignore it is problematic to the overall Cinderella story that the official narrative wants everybody to embrace. Well, let's just make it clear. So any, any reasonable mind would say why, right? Why, why did Tavistock construct them? Why did the phone ring and tell Martin this is happening? 
when he was clearly on a number of, of instances, he said they don't have that much talent. Right. There's there's nothing there. I mean, I think I'm aware of three or four, even a more modern. Uh, what's that guy's name from Britain? Uh, I forget a more modern interview and they put a cut in. It almost seems to me in that interview that Martin might have went a little too far because there was a cut in an odd place. But the point I was going to make is they had a social engineering agenda. And I have stated in so many episodes, it is probably the most successful psychological operation of all time. Yep. Family unit was broken. Our moral values were broken. They were drugged out of their damn minds, as was my generation, as have so many generations since then, all the way to the point where now the pusher is a pharmaceutical company, all normalized because of the period of time. But if we go back to the 12 atonal, so I'm reading... I don't remember if it was in the Adorno book. I know there's a reference in the Committee of 300 by Coleman, but the implication of the 12 atonal is that this is unhelpful. This is not melodic, high-minded music. This is basement going the other direction. And so I got in a conversation with Jason about the 12 atonal scale, and he talked to the man who wrote the soundtrack, Shoot the Moon, who's a PhD in music. What is your take on, on the idea of the 12 atonal I mean, it's almost like there's no common reference to, to whatever they meant when they said that back then. Yeah. So Beatles music was not atonal. It's tonal. So I, in my presentation, did the Beatles write all their own music? I addressed this issue. So Coleman did not get it right. And I surmise that the reason why Coleman, Dr. Coleman went off on that path is because I, I, I sensed that he just was disgusted with where the music was going. He knew where it was going. He knew what the uh, the agenda was. And so he got off on this whole atonal. It, it makes sense. Bit, right? Right. So I, I, that's what I think. So, but Beatles music is not atonal. It's, it's tonal music. There, there's a couple of uh, situations, songs where we might hear some atonal types of riffing, like at the end of Magical Mystery Tour, you know, perhaps. An example of an avant-garde, atonal type of construct would be Revolution Number no. 9, with all of these tape splices and bits all over the place. In other words, there's no real structure. It's a kind of a free-for-all, anything kind of goes. But that's, it, that's not Beatle music. Beatle music is tonal. And that's where Coleman got it wrong. And, and that's interesting, because the moment you said it, I remember thinking that very thing, that he was already prejudiced against the whole thing for more than one reason, partially because his generation's music, he considered much more musical and higher minded. But like you say, he knew what the agenda was. By the way, I have it on good authority from people who knew so many of the people that Coleman points to who have said there's very little that he was talking about that didn't come to pass in that book. Just so anyone knows, if you want to read it, it's called The Committee of 300. I think yep. that's it, right, yep. Mike, by, yep. by Coleman? And it's been out since a long time ago. But there's there's a few things here that I want to get. Maybe I should do them in an order that kind of makes sense. What we should mention, though, Crow, is that because a lot of people, like when I, whenever I talk about this stuff, they just want to say that Coleman is some kind of conspiracy nut job. Understand that the book on the Committee of 300 is not a book about the Beatles. No, there's there's two or three pages that indirectly, right. well, there's one one paragraph that directly points a finger. All the rest of it is indirect references. Right. So so what happens is when you when you talk about the other content in Dr. Coleman's book, 
uh, people in the alternative research community, the truth community, they're like, oh, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Boy, that guy was, you know, he had the score going back 35, 40 years ago. But as soon as you mention the Beatle aspects of it, they don't like that. Right. So the, the reason why I, I want to point this out is because the Committee of 300 is not a book about the Beatles. It's not John Coleman beating up on the Beatles. He's just bringing them in as part of what the Committee of 300 was doing and still doing to alter the fabric of our society and our culture. Perfect. And and there's another thing I've mentioned there of, I, I don't want to say too much because I've been, you know, people don't want to be publicly known for talking about such things. I had said to people in the know, how is it that Coleman could have even come by some of this information had he not been fed? I feel, And I was making the statement, I feel like he was involved in an early revelation of method. And the response I got back was indirect and mostly crickets in the room, just to put it yeah. out there. But it's it's not really arguable that most of what he laid down, we can look, we can see it in reverse now. But there's an interesting thing, and I I, I haven't heard you talk about. It. I wonder, doesn't George Martin have a coat of arms that has like three beetles on it? Uh, I have to look at his coat of arms again, but I I think you're correct. Somebody, a couple of people have made mention of that. I haven't looked at his coat of arms very closely, but yeah, okay. there's something about his coat of arms that would make you raise an eyebrow. I was wondering if anyone knows that, you know, did he have that before the Beatles? Cause that'd be a tell. And that leads me into, it feels to me. And, and part of this is based on, I think the first was the first book was called Billy's back. I think I got like the early, the, the first version before all the later updates. Well, there's two books. Uh, the memoirs of Billy Shears is the full blown 666 page book. Uh, Billy's back is the abridged version of memoirs. Well, the one I got has his back on the front, but it is a thick, thick yeah. book. I think Billy's back is about 400 pages itself. So in that, there's some illusions that everybody in, in the Tavistockian construct world, like the Stones or the Who, knew about the whole Paul thing, which, of course, they must have. They even point to songs. Oh, what do you think this song is about? But there's an underlying current, and you just mentioned that they got signed on Biological Paul's birthday, and there's songs that make, make it feel like people knew this was coming. There's allusions to, oh, he had dreams, he knew he was going to die, but there's an, and, and you even mentioned Billy Shears, new Paul, may have well been around before old Paul goes away. Right. Do you, do you get a sense that there was a plan from way back that we were swapping out original Paul? And if so, why? Um, because it goes back to, it goes back to Crowley and in memoirs, it tells us that in the footnotes, and I've, I've got the 2022 version of memoirs. Um, I just finished rereading it. And so what folks have to understand is the world is run by occultists. So they're going to do their occult thing. So they're, they go about identifying astrological events tied to dates, tied to gematria, tied to numerology, tied to tarot, all of this stuff. And so from reading memoirs, what I got out of it was biological Paul McCartney. He had all the right criteria, which what does that tell you? That tells you that, that he was on the radar, which tells me and I'm not going to make you know any allegations here, but I'm just saying this is my opinion, that one way or another, his family was had to be tied into it. I believe that his father, Jim McCartney, was a Freemason, and that 
he may have been a big part of what was going to happen. You know, a lot of times, you know, they don't have the full story. They're given basically work streams to focus on. And his father would have had a particular work stream that he had to, uh, he had to manage with regard to his son. The same thing with John Lennon. In fact, I had one person tell me, I have not been able to substantiate this, but I'll just tell you what this person told me, that the Harrisons were tied into American intelligence. Okay, so, you know. His sister lives in this country, does she not? Yeah, I think she does. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh. So take that for what it's worth. And in memoirs, it tells us that Ringo is, is uh, very much connected, but they don't explain, the book doesn't explain the connection point. So going back to what you were saying, it's all based upon the occult. So I do believe, Crow and Jason, that the Beatles go back before 1962. At the very least, what I've said, at the very, very least, it goes back to when they got to Hamburg in August of 1960. And as I just mentioned earlier in our discussion, honestly, I think it goes back into their childhood. I think they were earmarked to do something. How could it be any other thing? And I've always viewed the Hamburg as here's your crash course. You know, here you're going to do long gigs day after day to get used to being in the public eye on stage, you know, all these things. Not only that, they're shaking out the band, right? Oh, that drummer's got to go. You know, things are happening. Hamburg was, Hamburg was training. Right. So the Beatles had to learn to just crank it out and learn songs quickly. And there's no better way to do that than to play them over and over and over again, day in and day out, every night. You know, so the Beatles... They would wind up going to the Hamburg Club at 6 p.m. And they would leave sometime after 2 a.m. And I have an interview from Pete Best. And he said they would wake up at 3 p.m. And they'd have to be back at the Hamburg Club by 6 p.m. And I address this because a lot of people think that during the Hamburg days, they were sitting there writing down, writing music, original music, and they were not. So Hamburg was to get them conditioned to crank. And that's so that when Tavis knocked through the switch for Beatlemania, the Beatles would be able to go on these breakneck tours. You know, the Beatles would do 16 shows in 16 days, like the American tour before they did Rubber Soul. I think it was 16 shows in 16 different states. I think one stint was in Canada and, you know, in 16, you know, 16 days it was. I mean, that's crazy. Take into consideration travel, airplanes, buses, and all that stuff, and so on, right? So the Beatles were taught the music that they took out on the road. So that's what Hamburg was about. Hamburg was about, okay, learning music, because we're going to teach you more music. And then you're going to take the music that we teach you, and you're going to take it out on the road. That's what you're going to do. So the Beatles, the Beatles were a veneer. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Hamburg was boot camp. And aside from Hamburg, what a lot of people don't realize is in between their Hamburg stints, they were doing gigs just about every night, every day throughout the UK. Many times it was close to Liverpool, but they were doing some other stints where they had to, they had to do some traveling. But the point I'm trying to make is between their UK stints and their Hamburg, they were cranking and cranking and cranking. They had their head down and it was in, in order to make them competent performers, not songwriters, because 
Tavistock already had their songwriters. They had to be competent performers. The thing you're pointing out, Mike, is that when would these people have had time to write all these songs that went on these albums? Not to mention the fact that on the first couple of albums, there's a ton of covers to begin with. Right. Well, they didn't have time, Jason. They didn't. And, uh, you know, when we go back and, and look at all the stories that were told, maybe we'll get into Rubber Soul. I, I could take you through that. That Rubber Soul, as soon as I started watching that documentary, being a musician, a songwriter, and somebody who records myself, I 20 minutes into it, I said, there's a big problem here. But even if we go back to their first album, Please Please Me, we're told that they recorded 10 songs in one day. Okay? <laughs> even the Decca demo, we're told that they did, I think it was 15 songs in several hours at Decca, three of which were nondescript originals. I think it was Like Dreamers Do, Hello Little Girl, and Love of the Love. I, I, I question that. We're told that uh, they wrote 30 plus songs while they were out in India when they weren't all there at the same time in India. Ringo left after two or three weeks because he'd become ill. Billy left after about a month, 30 days. And George and John stayed for 60 days. And they went there with an entourage, which included um, you know, their, their girlfriends and Donovan and, and others, right? So there were things that they were doing in, in, in India, uh, activities and meditation and all that stuff. And then the, the one that really gets me is uh, there's a story that, um, well, part of the Beatle legend is that the, it's the Isher demos. And we're told that on an unknown day in May of 1968, so I, I have no idea how everything else within the, the Beatle realm is documented. All the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, but we have no idea when it is that they went in and recorded 27 demos in one day at George Harrison's bungalow. And that's referred to as the Isha demos. And I think 19 of those songs, I'm trying to read some, if I'm missing some of these numbers, folks, just bear with me. Sometimes it's just so much information. But I think 19 of those songs ended up on the, uh, on the White Album. Someone should call the Guinness Book of World's Record, but the fact that they're on the White Album, I'm going to bring up the White Album. In other words, the, the White Album gets implicated into a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, the White Album, to me, is the first album where we hear more of their own compositions and more of them playing on the tracks because you can hear a clear distinction between the musicianship that we hear in some of the songs in the white album and the musicianship that we heard through the first seven albums from please please me to revolver the biopole era biopole era 1962 through 1966 to me there's a big difference in in the sound big difference in the the skill level on many of the songs Simpler songs while Bio Paul is there. Is that what you're suggesting? No, to, I mean to play live. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about just the skill level of the musicianship. Were some of the songs simple? Yes, that's the argument. A lot of people want to say, "Well, these are not hard songs to play." It doesn't matter whether they're hard songs to play. My point is how well they're being played. And the Beatles did not show any inclination to have that level of skill, musicianship-wise, to play at that level. Think about a song like Day Tripper and how that song begins, the riff, and then how the drums roll in. When have we ever heard Ringo Starr drum like that? One of the examples I use to really kind of draw it out for people so that they can do a comparison is go to John Lennon's first solo album, Classic Ono Band, and listen to the song God and listen to the drumming on God. 
That's Ringo. It's stiff. It doesn't, it's, it's not fluid. I mean, does he do a good job? He does a good job. He does a decent job. But it is not the same drumming that we're hearing on the early period songs. The early period songs that we know that George Martin himself and the Beatles official narrative tells us that Andy White was hired to drum on Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. And I have said that I find it very hard to believe that George Martin only hired Andy White, a session drummer, for those two songs. If, if I was a betting man, I would bet you that all of the drumming on the first album, Please Please Me, is Andy White. We've had Bernard Purdy step out starting in the late 1970s to say that he drummed on 21 Beatles songs. Bernard Purdy is one of the greatest session drummers of all time, one of the most recorded drummers of all time. He played for 25 years with Aretha Franklin. And I have people say, well, he's a liar. He's a liar. No, he's not a liar. He drummed on 21 songs. When I released my big presentation back in April of 2020, before that, I had been dialoguing with, with a person. And it's one of those dialogues, email correspondences, where you know that that person knows a lot more than what they're saying. So after I released the presentation, they wrote me. And they said, well, Mike, now that the cat is out of the bag, let me just tell you this. I am related to Ronnie Verrill, the great session drummer out of the UK. Now, Ronnie's he passed away, and you know, I guess it's got to be at least 10 years ago or so now, but but she said that uh, Ronnie drummed on Beatles songs too. And this person is a family member of Ronnie Verrill's. We have Bernard Purdy in an early 2000, I think it was 2004, it was a Red Bull sponsored interview. He came out and said that uh, there were four drummers on the Beatles music. And I, I believe Bernard was talking about the early period, 62 to 66. And he said, and Ringo was not one of them. So how many more people have got to step out and talk about this before people realize that the person telling you this is not the liar? <laughs> right, know? right. Well, I got to jump in here. We're coming to the top of our Yeah, point. go ahead. But what I have found is for you, like the work that you're doing, you've gone into the nuts and bolts. You'll give you the damn day, the date, the name, the birth date. And what I have done is detected the fraud. And a lot of people who would like to hear Mike Williams' date, Stephen, consider what I have said, do things like, well, yeah, that, that band, but not this other band that I love. You know, it's, it's the mindset you're talking about. We're a nerd. We're quite married to these things that were the soundtrack of our young lives. But Mike, please tell folks where they can get a hold of your just awesome work. Are you primarily on YouTube at this point? Uh, yeah, I'm on YouTube, BitChute, Odyssey, all of them. So just go to my hub website, folks, Sage of Quay, S-A-G-E-O-F-Q-U-A-Y.com. All of the links are there. And um, whatever platform makes you happy, I'll be there. All right. Just to, to be clear, it's Sage of, and the word Quay is spelled Q-U-A-Y. Now, when we get back, I have so many things. And Jason, I'm sorry I bogarted that. We're going to have to butt you in because I know you want to get in on this. I want to talk a little bit about the LSD because it's important to the Tavistockian ideas. I want to talk a little bit more that the death to come was known. And I think this is pointed out in the book where they're saying, oh, this song that everyone loves is talking about this. Ruby Tuesday, on and on it goes. A little bit about studio time, but I think there's a big story to be told from Harry Nielsen. Not too long ago, there was a whole movie made about his life, and he's on YouTube saying flat out that he was the fifth Beatle at times. 
Anyhow, with that, we're going to wrap up hour one of episode 481. We're going to take a very short break and come back for hour two. So many things we could cover. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W 777radio.com. Members know to come in and log in for the full episode. With that, we're going to take a quick break, and I would like to wish everybody in the entire world a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing.